Arthur? Arthur, Arthur, are you awake? Eamon, what what is it? I dozed off for a minute. I think think we drifted. Wait. Oh, no. I think we're in. I'm cold. Yeah. I think we're in Mechanis. I just see these giant gears everywhere. Oh, no. What? Tell me more about the giant gears that you see. I'm too overwhelmed by the cogs and sprockets. I just, I don't know. I, I know that we were drifting through limbo, and I think somehow we made it all the way out to the plane of law. I think we're just, you know, somewhere very orderly. Ugh. Oh, no. You better all stand this... on the other side of me so that we're in alphabetical order. You better believe it. All this clockwork and, and specificity, it's really its really putting my, my disorganized notes to shame. Oh, I do ever so much hope that we are not caught by one of the ancient judges. Someone just uh, pressed a printed out note into my hand that said, um, time for you to spout a... Uh, a recent highlight from a game, so I guess we're deviating too much from from our, our programming. All right, um, well, if the ugh. itinerary says so, it must be true. I guess I should tell us a little bit about an underwater adventure that I ran a couple of days ago. dungeon world group we've been doing some fun uh, adventuring in a flooded city where the flooded city is truly and completely flooded out most of the buildings are either floating on the surface of waters or dangling from air balloons and zeppelins or built on top of the ruins of massive skyscrapers that were uh, rendered unusable in the flood originally so we finally crossed the the barrier and actually had an underwater episode an episode where the entirety of the time was spent swimming around and trying to find things deep beneath the surface of the water, which let me really lean into some fun thalassophobia, sort of triggering elements like giant squid, and then also gave me a chance to play with a couple of new underwater cultures with uh, some merfolk. So that was a ton of fun. It was cool to both have a super dangerous, unique place and have some new interactions with some NPCs that I was fun to that were kind of fun to play due to how different they are from the usual so that was all very good one element in particular that I want to call out is as always my favorite dungeon world technique ask the players use the answers I asked what the players were doing in order to breathe underwater I didn't say oh you you'll have to be able to figure out how to breathe underwater and that's the adventure for today Because ultimately, in a city that's flooded like this, everyone's got some way of breathing underwater. And I was really curious to see what my players could come up with. And it was great. Wow. So what was um, the the reason that they were underwater in the first place? They were were looking for an artifact? No, the the temple full of cultists that they they had recently done a little scouting into, uh, it sank in a storm, although they later found out that it actually dove as a submersible vehicle. Wow, that sounds yeah. like some real interesting spaces you got into. So anyway, that was a real highlight for me. Just some real good underwater fun. Did you have a druid in the party? Uh, no, we did not. We actually are a wizard and thief. The thief had stolen an underwater breathing apparatus, and the wizard had uh, cast a spell, a bubble, over his head. Nice. I, I do like uh, when we get to see druids in like lands that are themed to them, and they're just like in their home space, but it's all good. Well, then you're going to be very, very pleased with my next highlight. Well, we'll have to wait till next episode to find out, I'm sure. Oh, wow. It's so long. All right. So moving on from highlight from recent games, it's time for us to get into our adventure workshop, where today we're going to be breaking down Dungeon World into its component parts and figuring out how to recombine, chop, and screw these bits into something new and exciting. We're going to start off in our adventure workshop by talking a little bit about what, Eamon, you're calling modular narrative. Would you say a little bit more about that, just so everyone is on the same page before we get into it? So I think some people just take a little bit of a too rigid approach to what games can do, uh, because I think that RPGs are a very flexible medium. 
Um, so, because so, some people are like, oh, if you want to tell that type of story, you got to go play this other game. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard that, Arthur, but I've sometimes played with people where I suggest that we take the story in a certain direction, and they sometimes say, like, no, this game can't do that. Um, and I'll, I'll, if you're playing a flexible enough system, you'll be surprised at what it can do. Like, you can play a going th- room by room through a mega dungeon type of deal in Dungeon World, but you can also play, like, a court drama, you know? You don't have to switch over to be playing, like, Vampire Masquerade or Knights Black Agents or, like, some other type of intrigue-focused game just to do intrigue, right, in Dungeon World. Does that kind of make sense? Oh, totally. So I definitely have played all sorts of stories, and I've made jokes with some of my groups about how I want, you know, our next game to be about us managing a bed and breakfast, but still in Dungeon World. <laughs> See, like, that type, that type of thing sounds fun to me. And at the same time, the other end of the spectrum is not recognizing the limits of a given system and taking, you know, taking something and just trying to stretch it thinly over things that's clearly not... Uh, designed to do right like if we were basically playing monster hearts uh, and we literally we were playing teenage monsters in high school and that sort of thing but we were using dungeon world just because we didn't want to change and and the playbooks were all like oddly not suited to what we were doing then then maybe we would be going into a space where the game was not designed to go but the thing that we would be remiss to to do is because we wouldn't have taken advantage of stuff that Dungeon World is offering that could help us go into that space. And essentially what I'm getting at here is that when I first finished reading the Dungeon World rulebook, I had the distinct impression that it was a toolbox that was a platform upon which other things could be built. And in fact, a toolbox in which some stuff already had been built to kind of show you where to go. Because the toolbox is being built on is the Apocalypse World engine, right? The idea that playbooks are a thing, the idea of the 2d6 you know, 10 plus 6 minus mechanic, the idea of compendium classes, the idea of moves, you know, all of those things that aren't necessarily about adventure fiction, but Dungeon World makes about adventure fiction, and you can take into those spaces. And we don't have to rebuild Dungeon World from the ground up just to, like, make it flex its muscles. Um, I've seen some really interesting Dungeon World play that just involved people having a little bit of a conversation before the game about what they wanted to do with the narrative to get everyone on the same page, and maybe one class swapped out, or maybe one custom move. Does that kind of make sense? Absolutely. I think what we're going to be talking about today is very much, you know, what parts of the narrative must Dungeon World support, and what things are sort of outside of what Dungeon World can handle, and where does that line exist? What does the spectrum between those points look like and beyond? And if you're really new to Dungeon World, maybe this isn't as relevant to you, but I think that eventually when you play enough, you're going to want to stretch the limits of what can happen. I mean, there is the advantage to RPGs that even if you sit down with a new table of people and play vanilla Dungeon World, like it will still be different than other times you've played vanilla Dungeon World. But a lot of times, if you really play a lot of RPGs, things can get really samey. Like I told you that that yeah. time I sat down at a fifth edition table and we went shopping and I knew how this was going to end before it started. We we're going to get the stuff we need for the adventure. Like obviously, you know, like we're going to buy rope. We're going to buy fake bug repellent. Right. So I, I, I'm interested in n- knowing what a game can support so that we can know how to like push and stretch and like always be at the edge of that. Sure. And let's also talk about some of the tools that we can use to push and stretch from end to end and some of the ways in which even something as simple as getting together and going on a shopping spree can still have narrative weight and interest. So I guess um, before you start adding mechanics to a game, which is a lot of times what we end up doing and we'll talk it, talk about soon, um, you have to know why you're doing that, which is the in-fiction thing. Because whether you're playing Dungeon World or hacking Dungeon World or just thinking about Dungeon World, the fiction should come first, right? So some reasons that I've seen, some already existing cases of things that people wanted Dungeon World to be able to do better, um, for example, travel. Um, the people who wrote Perilous Wilds weren't satisfied with how Dungeon World handles long overland journeys and wanted that part to be a little bit more fleshed out. And so instead of making a whole new game, they just added a little bit of stuff to Dungeon World, but already with the fiction in mind. Um, if you even just look through the art of Perilous Wilds, it is reminiscent of scenes in Lord of the Rings where you just see these sweeping helicopter drone shots of them walking across the, you know, the, the Middle Earth landscape or the real life New Zealand landscape. Um, and those are some of the most evocative scenes and all they're doing is walking, right, for weeks. 
But um, in per- Perilous Wilds, is kind of trying to evoke that of like the times that our heroes get to bond, like the between things. Um, whereas Default Dungeon World kind of clips past those fairly quickly. Does sure. that make so sense? One, yeah. So one narrative element that maybe Dungeon World doesn't encourage us to explore is what is it like to walk together as a group for months on end or weeks on end? And what sorts of things do we do as we walk? Now, when we get to talk about mechanics, maybe that'll be a move that we could start to build out um, and move over from a different system because there's a great move for this in Uncharted Worlds, which is, I believe, the Cramped Quarters move, where because that is a game about being in a spaceship together for long periods of time, occasionally people will get on each other's nerves or bond more deeply because of the shared space, the physical space in which you're all existing. So it's a place where the the fiction gets built out by the move and where the move without the move, you don't end up building that fiction at all. I encountered this exact problem in a game that I ran on Monday where it was just a one shot, you know, very low prep. We went into it, fought off some bandits, learned a truth about the world and then went to go and fix that truth. And we rolled perilous journey and we went off on our perilous journey and we landed at the top of the mountain. And then in a break, one of the players told me, oh, I wish we could have had the conversation along the way where all of our characters got to talk about what they think about what's going on in the world. And I realized, oh, no, this player and probably the rest of the table just didn't get a whole part of what they were looking for because we didn't have a, uh, we didn't have a narrative reason to get into it. And, and we didn't have a mechanical reason to find that narrative reason. So did you end up like retconning that conversation? No, we um, we ended up having a different opportunity to have that conversation. So I was glad we still we still made it happen. But it wasn't it, it wasn't the sort of overland travel. I, I think let me put it in, put in a different way. I think the overland travel would have been a great opportunity for everyone to express to each other what that was like. So anyway, we'll talk a little bit more about mechanics like this later on in the episode. But for now, let's think about the bits of narrative that I think Dungeon World encourages us to use and where we can add new bits and where some bits can be subtracted without losing the core spirit of the game. I have one key one off the top of my head, but Eamon, do you have anything you'd like to start us out with? Um, my mind is already kind of going towards uh, mechanics, but um, stepping back from that a little bit, if you look at the existing moves in Dungeon World, kind of a la Perilous uh, journeys uh, and per- perilous wilds where they they take the perilous journey move and they kind of expand it into a slightly more fleshed out system you could do that with some other moves uh, in, in order to emphasize those parts of the fiction because for example shopping if you wanted dungeon world to be a little bit more about the gear being at the forefront and you wanted there to be different types of swords and, and that sorts of thing that did like specifically different things um, and you wanted the process of haggling through a store and trying to get like finer steel, you could take the, um, the supply move and make a little bit more of a detailed system out of that. And likewise, mm-hmm. if you wanted to see the, um, the fiction of stress on the adventurers and you wanted to see like how, what types of things they're doing to cope with like the horrors they're seeing in the dungeon, you could simultaneously flesh out the last breath move and the carouse move. And kind of have something mm. closer to uh, closer to um, Grimworld, you know, where like sure. death is a little bit more central and it's it's sort of a, gr- a grittier feel. But again, still playing Dungeon World, still got the same classes, and right. it really saves you a lot of work of going and hunting down another system and, and that sort of thing if you don't need to. Sure. Another place where you can start to move things around in fiction and change the mechanics as a result is around sort of the the fantasy races that we typically see. You know, Dungeon World playbooks by default say that there is a set of races that can be that playbook and you can and a blank is deliberately left so that additional races can fit into that. But I have definitely seen people talking about how they don't want to support elves and dwarves in their game, either because it's not really appropriate for the story they have in mind or because they're tired of it or somewhere in the in the middle of those of those options. And in that case, you can still do that without changing the mechanics, but it is where things st- sort of start to move away from what Dungeon World traditionally is there to do. Because once you don't have elves anymore, what does that mean? Does it mean you also don't have orcs? So what kind of sort of marauding monster races are we going to go with? Uh, are there no dragons anymore? As you start to peel away things like, you know, what can a player do mechanically, you also or you also start to lose elements of fiction. And, and then from there, you lose more elements of mechanics. And 
back and forth, back and forth in a way that maybe peels away too much from the game. Sure, but I think that um, those sorts of changes are still doable as sort as long as you sort of uh, frame them properly in fiction, because the mechanics sure. will kind of uh, come to back you up at times. Like I've already seen a good amount of reworks of the Dungeon World core playbooks that simply just rename all the races as just fictional background things. Mm -hmm. um, for example, I, I did one of my own for the wizard, and I, it renamed um, the. I think. Is it human and elf are like, I think are the two for wizard. Sure. There might be one more. I that renamed them right. uh, bachelors of science and bachelors of arts ah. right? are like the two backgrounds. And so it was kind of just like that little mechanical bonus that you get was representing like which track you took in wizarding school or whatever, mm -hmm. you know? And so, and so it's, it's giving you a bonus because of something that happened in your past, which can be a in fiction trigger. Like if you meet someone who went to the same school, maybe they're from a rival house, you can get some of Harry Potter vibes in there and that sort of stuff. So it matters in fiction, but mechanically it's just the same buff that you would have gotten from being sure. an elf, you know? But at the same time, again, if, if we don't have elves anymore, then what does that imply about the sorts of things that the GM might bring into the world as details? Right. And Are there no th elves at all? In that case, you know, is there a people of the forest that that has this ancient and immortal civilization that's gradually fading into a different realm, if we pull straight from Tolkien, that is. Right, or uh, it could be more of a Game, Game of Thrones type thing, where basically everyone's humans, because for some reason, a lot of the more fantastical elements have been gone from the world for, for a while, and maybe like there could be that slow burn of bringing that stuff back in, um, especially if the party composition supports it, right? If I, if I saw like in the game, like, Paladin, Fighter, Thief, that was my party, May, I would ask them, like, hey, guys, what do you think about magic in this world, given that there is very little of that in your in your playbooks? Um, mm -hmm. I actually do this sometimes um, based on the party composition, ask questions about the missing classes. So if I have no wizard in my party, I might ask the um, I might ask the party, are there wizards in this world at all? What do you guys think about that? Um, are they evil? Like, is is just are there no good wizards? Um, and things like if there's a wizard absent and, and if there is a player for that class, ask them about the existing classes. Um, so I might ask the druid, are you the only shapeshifter in the world? Are there others of your kind? You know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. I love that angle of, you know, when something is missing from the narrative that's been portrayed so far, then let's get together and talk about what it looks like so that we're not making an assumption or not all on the same page. That is very cool. Now, let's let's think a little bit a little, a little bit about other fiction elements that Dungeon World sort of naturally predisposes us to, and what sorts of ways we can shift those around a little bit as we make changes to our core game and core experience here. I think that because Dungeon World um, does a lot of the work for us in the background that we, uh, in terms of bookkeeping that we might otherwise be doing. Um, we can add some of that sort of back in, so to speak, like uh, to, sort of like salting a dish to taste. Like once it's presented like bland enough to us, then we can kind of like bring back the spice in like a good amount. So, for example, Dungeon World strips the spell system down to be really simple. If you were playing a party with a cleric and a wizard, you know, and maybe some third party spellcasting class and they wanted it to be a little bit deeper you could kind of like make spellcasting kind of a bigger, more central mechanic and kind of like add back in some like more interesting things um, to it. Uh, and, and that wouldn't be that hard. There's other, e even if you, even if you didn't want to change the mechanics in fiction, you could simply make that a little bit more front and center, like mm -hmm. make, make there be uh, a special, you could, you could write a, um, a custom move about like finding spells in the wild, like finding spells in a spell book that you've like found on the ground or on a corpse of an enemy. And like, yeah. do you instantly add those to your list or is there like a danger associated with like a, a new spell? Is it possible to nest a trap inside of a spell? Cool. That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you might, and, you might add a custom move for being taught something deeper about the world and about magic by say a sage out in the middle of the woods or uh, an ancient tome in an old tomb. Yeah, or uh, custom moves for um, teaching someone else a spell, like who's not a caster. Um, if you were trying to, like the wizard was trying to give magic lessons to the fighter or something like that, or the wizard was taking on an apprentice as a hireling, that sort of thing. For um, sure. I, I love the idea of a custom move for, you know, when you teach a spell to someone whose inclination is not towards the arcane, then, you know, roll plus charisma and, you know, the, and maybe choose two, choose one as your, as your 10 plus and seven to nine. 
where I hope I hope that our our listeners are getting the sense here that um, you can do a lot with a single custom move, which is kind of revealing of the sense that Dungeon World is, you know, built on a toolbox. Yeah. And, and that, perhaps more importantly, those custom moves can be there specifically to serve a moment or a scene that you're interested in seeing. Yeah, because I think essentially what a custom move is, is twofold. It's one, a flagpost of the types of scenes and types of fiction that we want. Like the existence of the move kind of like begets that. Like the fact that there is a last breath move kind of like implies that death is something that we eventually want to touch on, for example. And simultaneously is a set of codified procedures that arbitrate that situation when it does happen. So by creating a new custom move, you are both providing yourself a handy new set of procedures and also providing the players and everyone in the game a new flag post for the types of situations you want to see. So for example, if I was taking Dungeon World and I was like, you know, one thing we don't see a lot in default Dungeon World is ancient technology, you know, and people kind of, in a lot of uh, old old school um, fantasy, there's this kind of like interesting mix between fantasy and sci-fi where like there are ruins of ancient civilizations and giant colossi like half submerged and that stuff. And if I wanted to put a sort of Numenera or, um, you know, Destiny-esque mechanic into Dungeon Worlds, you could have a, a, a custom move that's just called Fiddle With It. And it's like when you interface with uh, a piece of a prior civilization, you know, role plus relevant stat, and, you know, you can, various things can happen there, right? Like maybe you, like, get a new piece of gear, or you gain experience, or um, it becomes a new weapon for you, or you unlock its true purpose, or it gives you a map to somewhere else, and that, that sort of thing. Um, that could change the game a lot, because now people are looking out for pieces of ancient civilizations, not just as something to spout lore about, but as something to potentially get other benefits from. Absolutely. So it sounds like maybe it's time for us to look into a couple of new moves that we can add into Dungeon Wall as we modify the mechanics to best suit our tables, especially because the clock has just struck 846. And as you must know, uh, being that we're in this horrible plane of law, it's time for us to refill our drinks and get back to it in MetaTalk. So, one thing I thought might be interesting uh, as a way to follow up on our on our ideas around, you know, how do we change Dungeon World to better suit our stories and better suit what we want to do with the game is why don't we t why don't we broaden it out a little bit and talk about ways that we can add to Dungeon World to support whole ways of playing that it doesn't naturally support, but in a way that still feels like Dungeon World. And so, I wanted to pr propose a little experiment. Go ahead. Right here on Mike Together, you want to... Uh, finally follow through on something that I think we've been sort of implying for a while and port the Blades in the Dark stress and flashback mechanics into uh, into Dungeon World? Sure thing. Let's do it. So what, the thing that you said there that that I think was right on the money was feels like Dungeon World because you have to have a good sense of what the design philosophy of Dungeon World as is to make sure that something that you add in isn't incongruous. And for a lot of games, it comes down to the conventions of what's already in the game in terms of dice mechanics and stats. If you were going to roll something other than D6 in Dungeon World and it wasn't for, like, weapon damage, I, my question would be how and why. Because that would be a, a deviation from the types of... or the underlying math of Dungeon World, I guess, that, like, what feels like Dungeon World. So my proposal, I suppose, for what we're doing now of, like, the stress and stuff is just add a new stat to the characters and uh, add that new stat uh, as stress. And that's your stress stat. And it starts at a, a plus zero. And then in the game, it can either go to a plus three at the highest or a minus three. And we could have moves that ask you to roll plus stress. Does that make sense? I like the idea of that. And then maybe as stress mutates through the course of an adventure or through the course of a job, whatever it happens to be, the, the, those moves change their odds. The less stressed I am and the more control I have over the situation, the better off I am to uh, you know think back to when I successfully completed something earlier. Or maybe we think about it a different way, which is that my stress grows the more I realize I didn't correctly set up the, the explosives to open up this gate 12 hours earlier. And similarly to Blades in the Dark, um, if you roll a 6 minus on another move, you could potentially upgrade that to a seven to nine if you take a minus point of stress. Yeah. 
All right. And so let's let's actually flesh out exactly what mechanics it is that we are that we're bringing by explaining the stress and flashback mechanics from Blades in the Dark for players that maybe haven't experienced that game yet. Sure. Do you want to take that? Absolutely. So Blades in the Dark is a game that's oriented around sort of heists and jobs and missions where in the course of a mission, you will occasionally run into a moment when you wish you had done something already. And the game provides a mechanism for that called a flashback, which in sort of a... the what it, in what it says on the tin you get to go back in time and say that something else has already happened in order to impact the fictional situation in which you currently are and when you do that you take a penalty zero one or two points of stress and the basic way that stress works is that it's a resource the players can expend to have more control over what's going on in the world up until the point where they hit nine stress that they've accumulated total at which point their character is uh, is permanently affected by the amount of stress that they've undertaken and takes on a new status for the remainder of the game. So it is sort of like hit points in Dungeon World where when you get to when you run out of uh, when you run out of available hit points, there is a major change in Dungeon World. It's last breath in Blades in the Dark. It's trauma. You take a, a point of trauma, which impacts your character from then on out. Um, so my thinking around why we want to port both stress and flashbacks over is because flashbacks having a fictional cost or a mechanical cost that is like hit points or one of the other expendables that the game provides by default doesn't feel quite right. It doesn't feel very dungeon world to me. So there should be some kind of mechanic that is tied to our character. That is a resource that we can use up in order to make a flashback valuable and not something to be done frivolously. So there could be the the concept that um, once you, if you ever make a roll with stress and get a six minus on your stress roll, which is more likely if you have negative stress, if we're considering stress to be that plus three to minus three stat, um, then you could get a debility in one of your other stats. Um, and like, which would be similar to the trauma in Blades in the Dark. And if you role play that debility, um, and it's like a permanent debility, mark barring some like major in story thing to solve it. Um, and if you role play that debility, similar to role playing your trauma in Blades in the Dark, then you could optionally get XP for that. I think that would kind of mirror that little cycle as well. For sure. it, would get, it would also give a, a serious drawback to accruing more stress because you get these permanent debilities, which could potentially beat your your main stats i like that idea i also want to revisit the idea though of stress as a modifier on dice rolls because i think there's a lot to be done with that i like the idea that when you when you flash back to an action that you've already undertaken in the timeline of our game uh roll plus stress and then that way there's almost an inversion of of it where the more stressed i am right now the more likely it is that something has already gone wrong and that my flashback is going to be more costly or is going to be more of a negative experience. Although, of course, then we run into the issue of as your stress decreases, so too does the uh, the viability of a flashback move. And when you attempt to flashback and fail, maybe that increases your stress even more or decreases your stress even further, depending on which direction we want that to go. We could also make flashback a... Um a custom move and have there be the mechanic of hold, right? That like when you roll for the flashback, depending on how well the roll goes, you get a certain amount of hold to spend in the flashback to like do meaningful things. Um, and that could make it a little bit more flexible. Yeah. That definitely feels very dungeon world where things like hold represent your ability to impact a, a larger fictional situation. The fact that that fictional situation has already happened is almost incidental. Or it could be it could be like a pick list if we wanted, where the flashback thing is, um, you know, on a ten plus, choose choose two, you know, on a seven to nine, choose one, um, and and the list could be things like, um, you don't have a, a lasting a lasting scar, physical or mental, like from this previous experience, um, you succeed um, in your goal in a way that meaningfully affects the present, like the list could right. include like stuff like that, you know? Yeah. It, it, stuff like you take, uh, you take an additional point of stress as one option. And then, um, no one sees evidence of your actions in the past that will then impact your position in the present. Right. There are no complications. There, there are no loose ends. And then one of yeah. them could be like, you get a plus one forward to the present moment, like that, that type of thing. Yeah. 
That that feels pretty good to me. Now the question is, how does it tie into our stress mechanic? I like the, stress, the idea. Of, the stress is what you roll, maybe like you roll right. stress to do a flashback for sure. And maybe stress isn't even the right word for it anymore in that case, because now I feel like maybe the the stat we actually want to be rolling is control. The more control you have over a situation, the better you're going to do on this roll. Or maybe it's a situation where you can roll either stress or control. And if you roll stress, you become more stressed. If you roll control, you lose control or something like that. Or hmm. or you're going to be spending spending a point of stress, like, de- like decreasing your stress stat um, in order to simply do a flashback at all, which kind of okay. limits the number of them that you can do. But the actual modifier that you're rolling for the flashback move is just whatever the flashback entails so like if the flashback is knocking some people out you're gonna be rolling plus strength you know flashback is like you had like a a, a stratagem in the past that might be plus int but in order to do it you have to actually decrease your stress and that the stress is going to be rolled in you know when you're tested in other circumstances yeah it maybe it is a situation where when you start a mission or something that you've been preparing for that's when you roll and you pick up some hold and then every time you spend the hold, you're going into the past in order to do something uh, and then making a move based on what it is you're doing in the past. Because Dungeon World, I think, already has many flashbacks baked in, right, in yeah. the form of adventuring gear, right? Like For that's sure. a flashback to see what you packed. And similarly, in a, in a way that I really like, um, the Sprawl, uh, you know, the cyberpunk PVTA game uh, basically has that, but in some other forms. And they have uh, gear and intel, which are basically just two different types of adventure gear, basically. Gear is like any any item, like a grappling hook or a rocket launcher, like something that you have with you on the mission. And intel is like the passcode to a specific door, the name of a specific guard, like stuff that you have that's going to let you lie more effectively, get past the challenges. Um, and so like if we just kind of extend that even further for Dungeon World, we could add like intel like into Dungeon World, um, you know, as a, as something of a, of a non-physical adventuring gear, which is kind of like... A flashback so maybe sure. like doing the flashback move gives you points of stuff that you can spend later yeah um, of course like, the thing about gear and intel is that both of those resources come from activities undertaken during the legwork phase which works yeah. quite well if you're playing a game that is all about sort of legwork and then a job and then downtime and then legwork and then a job and then downtime but since dungeon world doesn't always fit that i almost feel like we need to have a clear-cut move that marks the beginning of a a sequence in which there's a before the sequence begins and an after the sequence begins. Uh, Maybe there's is, like an enter the dungeon move for sure. Uh, that might be a, that might be a really good fit when you um, and wh- whatever the dungeon happens to be when you pass the point of no return and you have started your and you started your adventure roll plus wisdom to represent how much you thought ahead or something like that. Yeah, I like it. Very cool. Um, do you want to talk? Uh, very briefly about uh, Cryptomancer, because Aaron had originally asked, like, you know, how, you know how, I see this really interesting space that Cryptomancer is going into, but like, how would I even approach that in Dungeon World? Yeah, let's let's jump into that because I think Cryptomancer we've talked about before, but just for point of uh, of reminder, I suppose, Cryptomancer is a game about a fantastic magical setting in which the key piece of information is that everybody is that long distance communication is possible via these little crystals which are yeah. if i recall correctly split off from one another and inter and intricately linked into these right, massive they're, networks they're called shards and basically if a professional gem cutter cuts them um they the ones that are cut from like the same source can basically be uh, it's like subnetting basically um what is subnetting Eamon, the it and security professional <laughs> so if you have um, a set of devices, right, computers, phones, what have you, uh, they're all going to have a specific code or name that identifies them, the IP address, and IP addresses that are basically in a certain format relate to each other. And so by, like, sectioning off IP addresses uh, into, like, a little group, be like, oh, these ones are all part of the same, you know, the green pool or the red pool or whatever, um, and, and doing that based on a certain amount of numerical math that I don't have to go into, uh, that is subnetting. So basically you're saying that, like, based on looking at the numbers, someone could say, oh, that's from our internal network or, oh, that's from, you know, the company across the road or whatever, if they happen to know that sort of information. So with the shards, it's like if they're all, like, a certain shape or a certain color or, you know, you might be able to tell that this one is from that set. Um, and when you're creating them, you actually have to cut them physically from the same 
So it, I think that one of the benefits of Cryptomancer is it lets you tell the sort of really interesting uh, espionage and uh, subversion and sort of hacking stories about people taking complex systems and subverting them, but without getting so abstract uh, that a lot of stuff that even people approach in cyberpunk games uh, when they're trying to do like, you know, what the sprawl does and stuff is that hacking in real life is not that cinematic at all. Right. And so they have to make the matrix and like the, 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 the cyberspace, like this really flashy world to kind of be a metaphor for what it actually is. And right. Cryptomancer does that by just taking it really gritty, like down into a fantasy world that like, if you want to um, impersonate someone like in the shark net or whatever, in a fantasy world that might involve sneaking up on them, knifing them, taking their shard, and then just sending messages as if you were them. You know, where in real life, it, there would be a lot of, uh, you know, behind the scenes monkeying about with uh, ma- taking their, their cookies and, and stealing their session ID and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, if we're taking it from a gritty fantasy perspective, um, things are more literal. You know, you have to hold the shard in your hand to use it. There's not like other stuff like that. Uh, there's not remote sessions and, and those sorts of things. It's a it's a much more simplified network idea, so that you can tell those sorts of stories in a, in a fantasy right. game. Which so I what think... Cryptomancer brings is sort of a simplified rule of networking, where the core idea that we have an internet that everyone can connect to and everyone can talk to one another through it. Um, that that core rule is connected to the the other rule of information is never safe or private when you send it and then you have to create your own mechanisms for keeping it safe and private when you use this larger system right and and cryptomancer has other ideas in it as a game but you can take just the shard concept without taking those other ideas if you want like some of the other ideas cryptomancer has is that the pcs are fragile and weak um a lot of the the and also that the pcs are unique and multifaceted that it's notably a classless game that you, you get a bunch of points to spend and you basically purchase spells and feats together and like if you take a lot of spells and i guess you're kind of the wizard of the party so to speak and that sort of thing and additionally there's a mechanic in cryptomancer of risk where you can basically give yourself inspiration to like re-roll a roll but at the cost of drawing attention from the sort of you know, evil agents of the setting that are trying to eliminate you that will eventually send hit teams after you. So by default, the game is in this death spiral where eventually your characters will be just hunted down and killed. But you're trying to see how how much good you can do in the world before that happens. But if you don't, that changes the game fundamentally, right? If you still want to play the sort of um, quick-moving power fantasy that by default uh, Dungeon World is, but you want to tell those interesting stories that are possible when you have shards and you want the convenience of shards of the party being able to communicate remotely and that sort of thing and you want the fun things of the characters speaking in code to each other and that stuff then you can just take a couple moves about arbitrating the shards in this world right you don't have to take everything else this system offers like new dice mechanics and gotta find custom character sheets um which is cool and and it also gives you, I think, the leverage that if the characters respond really well to that and they want to explore more that can be done in that space, then maybe eventually you could introduce that whole other game. Um, yeah, I'm kind of speaking advice to myself, too, because when I read a new system and get really excited about it, I I feel the pressure to, like, you know, try to convince my my group to, to play a whole session of a, a different game. And a lot of the people that I play with are a lot more reticent to take on those kind of big cognitive loads and shifts than I am. And and it's easy to remember that like even though I've read and grokked, you know, this whole system that at the table on the night to someone else it's all coming as new, you know. For Whereas sure. they've spent a lot of time getting familiar with something else. And I'm sure that a lot of our listeners have experienced that with Dungeon World because for very few people is Dungeon World the first RPG that they play. So there's already that trying to get people into what is Dungeon World as opposed to these other things and there's preconceptions that have to be you know, done away with and that sort of stuff. So I think that this modular concept of being able to adapt things to the spirit of the given system is just going to make us more flexible overall. For sure. And speaking of flexibility, I think we need to zip the, uh, the all this talk of leverage and networking and stuff is starting to get a couple of stares from the other patrons at this bar. And you know that eye contact on the plane of law is a bad sign. It is. It's a bad, bad sign. You should only look ahead and at the work that is to be done. Yes. Praise the machine god. Oh, praise the machine god. And speaking of work that there is to be done, I think it's time for us to get our imaginations in order uh, so that we can get into our next segment. Picture this. (laughs) 
right, we've ticked to the right side of the dial, and we are in the, uh, the closed metallic room marked picture this, so I guess we better start picturing or they'll never let us out. So, Arthur, I don't, I don't know how, uh, how far you have roamed in the RPG blogosphere, but there's some really interesting stuff out there from, um, just incredible takes on existing tropes to, uh, straight up drama between bloggers, uh, to art and content. And sometimes you get glimpses of the future. And I had such a glimpse when I was, uh, checking my, my, um, my list of different OSR and, uh, and, uh, PVTA blogs. And from False Machine, which is the blog run by, um, run by, I'm forgetting. I'm uh, Patrick scroll, Stewart, scroll. I believe. Patrick Stewart, yes, that's right. Patrick Stewart of Veins of the Earth fame. Uh, he was one of the writers, um, I believe, of that. Um, and an artist as well, I believe. Um, he, he made a post that was just titled, Greetings Fellow Community Members. And... In, in short, what the post was, was him explaining that he was going to soon be ready to launch a Kickstarter for a new game and trying, but and he was trying to just kind of soften the community by just telling them that it was something weird and, and try to explain the concept. And he basically had the idea, so this is kind of a, both an in-fiction and an out-of-fiction picture this, because the in-fiction thing that I'm getting to is really interesting to picture, and so it is the out-of-fiction concept. So here's the out-of-fiction concept. He had the idea that now that a lot of games in the in the fantasy role playing space have very simple and elegant rules that are can be explained in maybe you know four or less pages, and I think Dungeon World would fit into that. That the essential procedures of Dungeon World can fit on just a few pages, um, as we see with the Dungeon World play kit, that all the moves are basically you know right there on like two pages. Um, that you could just make an adventure book that contained, you know, a whole hex crawl or a whole mega dungeon or, you know, some big adventure and just put the rules right in the adventure. Um, and so you could have whatever the adventure is with its specific fictional circumstances requirements, have the rules be tailored directly to that, that, and have them be sort of bespoke, as he puts it. And he does this by using a modified version of the Into the Odd rules. So, he basically present into the odd has you roll your stats and then cross reference on a character table to see what your starting gear package is. And so by adding like one or two new procedures and also making his own custom gear table, he allows it to be tailored to the world that he made and the adventure that he's going to put out, which is basically it's this project he's calling silent Titans that he's been writing for a while. And basically the idea is that there were these massive like world shaking Titans, uh, kind of run by these magical AIs that were so powerful and everyone kind of banded together to basically like put them down and like take them down in the ancient past. And they're basically lying dormant. They're, they've been basically the gods fought them into a coma, um, kind of a la Greek mythology where the Titans and gods are at each other's throats. And so you as these adventurers have to basically go into the ruins of these Titans underground as they are like delve underground until you go inside of them where they're lying underground and basically steal out their brains so that they can be, you know, separated from their bodies so that they can never wake again. Cause their brains are these giant diamond lattices cut through with gold helixes basically, which is like what magically their, their consciousness would be held within. So that's the kind of elegant consideration that their brains are money. So if you're just a grubby adventurer wanting to go in there, you can just, take that and sell it and might not even know the, the cosmic good that you're doing of preventing these evils from waking. Um, but I think that easily that concept certainly can just be taken in an underworld, right? Like there's this the idea that you could just have these giant titans and that the dungeon could be the slumbering corpse of this huge thing. Absolutely. The, the living dungeon and the slumbering corpse aesthetic is something that we see in games like Breath of the Wild. Um, I feel like there's a little bit Maybe not veins of the earth exactly, but the idea of the, being in the veins of something. I think a lot of the same rules may apply. Something that large, so that deep underneath, it all kind of fits together. In a lot of the um, legends of the flame print or lamentations, I should say, of the flame princess material and adventures that uh, Zach Sabbath has worked on, 
there's the shared fiction that I know he has in his home game where the world is a massive cube and the actual matter that the world is made of, like the bedrock and the stone, is the petrified corpses of these giant beings. Like because like a Medusa or Medusae in the ancient past like petrified all of them. So there actually is the idea that um, you are going through the veins and bones of like some ancient thing which i think is really cool and and he uses it mechanically in his game too that if you delve down deep enough into the dungeon because like the whole world is basically one interconnected dungeon you can come out into the other side and that's how he does planar travel that like the other planes are just other faces of this giant planetary cube that would be inaccessible by walking there because you'd kind of walk to the edge of the cube and be like outside of the atmosphere and die but if you go down through the world you can go to these other faces and other planes of the cube and uh, i think he actually has more than i think it's not just a cube but it's like the whole world is like a d20 or something like it's it's something where like there's actually many other faces to it it's but a polyhedron it, rather than a sphere right and and for him it also um it has like the the idea that like that's why you have to go in the dungeons in the first place because that's where the cultural exchange happens that's where these all this interesting stuff that has filtered through from other worlds and things like that um but yeah, I, I definitely think that the sense of scale would be cool for Dungeon World to just have these monstrous things that you're kind of traversing through the bones of them would be really flavorful from a fictional perspective of like interesting adventure locations. Like maybe now we're in uh, we're in the stomach, and, you know, and and there are just different sorts of acidic creatures and lots of oozes and jellies or maybe we're in the the nervous system of this creature and there might or, or the immune system and there might even be these automated defenses and that type of stuff like would be just cool to see in a dungeon world space like i think every class in vanilla dungeon world might have reasons to delve into such a space too um you know like for a druid it would be an anathema to nature these giant things that should be eradicated once and for all for the wizard there's a tomes of lore down there for the thief their brains are literally giant gold you know, gold-infused diamonds, and and on and on. But yeah, I yeah. think that at least when I, I'll link the post because when I read it, I was just, I was picturing many things. Yeah, this feels like a really fun. I would even say a full campaign's worth of content. The 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 mad scramble to even find one of these silent titans deep under the earth. The the glory to have even delved into the the first layer of skin on one of these, let alone be an adventurer to return with an intact brain. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Ah, the riches. All right. Well, why don't we jump into listener emails? I feel like we've managed to evade the, the, the law, the, the law folks down here in this plane of law uh, long enough that we can probably get off a message back to the surface and then return into out, into limbo and then maybe get someplace a little bit safer. Yeah, I found a, I found a discarded uh, sending stone uh, that actually has some messages uh, from our contacts on the prime plane. So oh, that's maybe. a good that's good news. Is it instructions on how to escape? No, it's just questions about adventures. All right. Well, here's one from Aaron D. Aaron D says, I'm new to RPGs, but I consistently hear that travel is no fun. Dungeon World handles this by hand-waving the Perilous Journey, and Perilous Wiles does this too, but with a little more crunch. What makes journeys uninteresting? How do you handle them? Have you ever conducted a campaign, a full campaign, that's on the move? And what are players typically interested in that travel doesn't provide? Now, we've talked a lot about travel today, I think, independently of the fact that we have this question, but I'm glad that it came up so many times because I want us to really take a moment, step back from what we've been talking about in the deeper context, and answer the question from the lens of what makes these journeys uninteresting. Because Aaron's right. I definitely feel like I think journeys are uninteresting. And that's wild. Because that's like most fantasy is the, the getting places. And I don't know why I feel that way. And I think it'd be fun to unpack that a little bit. So I think that what makes it uninteresting um, is if it's there for no reason. Um, and if there's a disconnect of like, why are we wasting our time seeing this happen when all the adventure, interesting stuff is over there? And for a lot of players, it seems like a, a violation of one of the strengths of RPGs, which is that it is literally no greater effort in an RPG to say a day passes than to say a century passes. Like we have the power to just like jump back and forth, you know, in time at will. 
which is not possible in certain other other things like notably in video games that is limited by the the resources of the game and of the hardware that you're running on of whether you're able to just like load up a massively detailed new environment instantly whereas we can do that with our words pretty easily it's funny though that you say that i I actually disagree that it's dramatic it's the same level of difficulty to say a year passes than a a millennia passes or a day in a century really any two units of time i think that a day passing is a lot more mundane than a century passing in terms of the amount of effort it takes for us to treat that as a real event that happens in our fiction our shared fiction together sure but like you can simply say that and then you're already on the way to it happening. Like uh, the door is open is all I'm saying. Whereas like some, sometimes that literally might not be possible in like certain other, other media. Um, but uh, what ha- I think for the, the problem is like when those tools are there, like I think you're hinting at there, there's a lot of power there that you can actually make those things feel different, but um, it's, it's a hard ship to steer or like weapon to wield so to speak right um i think maybe maybe the the thing the way that i would like to frame that a little bit more is we have the ability to reach consensus over how much time passes before we get into something that we're interested in talking about again right um so i think that i think one hallmark of uninteresting travel is the travel that isn't meaningful or that is like deterministic like we will reach our destination and the stuff that we're going to do is there based on meta knowledge that we have of what the GM has planned or something like that. And it seems like the travel itself is literally filler. Um, so you can use the travel for interesting, um, complications to come up or for character development. For example, I think that's what perilous, um, journeys is trying to do. Um, and what perilous wilds is trying to do even more is to see like some character development through travel and maybe learn a bit about the world on the way there the the technique that jason cordova is always um is always touting of um the character interrogation where like if people are sitting at a campfire and we're we're seeing a montage scene of them traveling ask them like what does another character around you do that is strangely endearing or that it's irritating to you to kind of like get some little scenes of character development and bonds and flags like while they're traveling but i remember a while ago i was talking about a game that i was playing with some friends of mine in college where we just came across a river and we knew that we were going to get to the other side of the river. And the jam was just giving us a hard time of like allowing our plans to just succeed. And it was literally wasting an hour of in real world time playing the game. And I knew that he had other stuff planned for that night. And I knew that this river wasn't going to kill us. And so I was wondering why we were wasting our time on this challenge. Like it was an uninteresting part of the travel because it was just fiddling with this challenge that was just to flesh out his idea of what a well-rounded session was. And he only wanted combat to be a certain percentage of it. So he was just taking up in a real world time with this other element. And it wasn't adding anything to the story, right? Like this, right. There, this river didn't mean anything to our characters. Sure. So, um, maybe, so, and so maybe the answer yeah. to what makes journeys uninteresting is if we know where we're going to go, what we're going to find when we get there and what happens along the way, then there's no point in us taking the time to mechanically resolve those truths. And the nice thing about Perilous Journey as a move is that it gives us all of the narrative uh, the, the narrative simplicity to say, here are three things that could go wrong. We run out of food. We have a hard time getting there. We don't see something coming before we arrive at it. And then depending on how those roles go, we get to explore one or more of those consequences. Yeah, I think that something you touched on there, um, that if we already know what the outcome is likely to be, that it's not interesting to um, to like pursue it mechanically. Um, in some situations, it might be like because we could say about even about the dungeon that if we know that we're probably going to kill everything in here and leave, like what's the point of doing it? Is that for some players it's actually fun to like play through winning a fight, even if they knew from the beginning that the odds were somewhat in their favor for because. Sure. Every moment of the fight might be dynamic, but for most people, it's more easy for them to picture a cinematic fight than it is for them to picture a cinematic weeks-long overland hike. Yeah. And, you know? and I think maybe the, the real question is not, you know, what happens while you're doing it, but it's what is a fun thing for us to, to call out specifically, even if we're not going to do the whole journey. It might be fun for us to say, hey, what's one conversation you had? What's one thing you saw that just caused your jaw to hit the ground 
What is right. something that you ate and that you really wish you hadn't eaten, and why did it, and why did it why did you react so strongly to it? Um, the Which individual would be questions uh, are a montaging, right? Exactly. That, that's basically an example of montaging. Yeah. Um, so I think that maybe I, th- I think that answers most of the the four part question here, which is how do we handle our journeys? What makes them? What What are the pitfalls that make them uninteresting? Uh, th- there's one question though. Have you ever conducted a campaign that's on the move? So th- there are a couple of different angles on this, right? And Eamon, I know you've tackled a couple of these kinds of campaign. There's the version where yeah. you're constantly going back to a ship and then taking that ship to different places. There's the campaign that is all about going from one place to another. There is the, and I think, you know, Lord of the Rings is the canonical, the classic example of that. And then there's the version of it where there's a world and we're constantly going from city to city. And we are, we're going to visit, you know, in the Game of Thrones, world, we're going to visit Winterfell and then we're going to visit King's Landing and then we're going to visit the North. Uh, and our whole game is just about going from city to city in a big old world and about the stuff that happens along the way. I think Game of Thrones, in my mind, uh, is actually an example of uh, the more montage style because whenever they actually do travel in Game of Thrones, you don't often see the travel itself, or if you do, you just see adventures that happen in the travel uh, because, like for example, a character will ride from the north all the way down to King's Landing, which we know is weeks of travel, but Sometimes it goes to the next scene or the next episode and they're there. Like the game, it wasn't that interested in what happens on that week's long journey. It was just like, yeah, stuff takes a long time without cars. And similarly with their communication, they communicate near instantly. <laughs> like these different cities like learn things like very quickly just because the ravens fly around and give the information. And only be- when it becomes fictionally relevant is that sort of thing taken away. Whereas in like Lord of the Rings, for example, it's more interested in the journey being the story. And so a lot of times we'll see multiple scenes or sometimes even a whole movie and they've just traveled a, a few miles, right? Like Sam and Frodo by the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, like they're just still looking on the horizon and seeing their goal. Whereas in most movies, it would be like, geez, like get there already, you know, if that was the point. Absolutely. Um, and so I think that Dungeon World by default is the more Game of Thrones style of we go to the next city and then, you know, within a couple minutes we're there and we're just interested in like some some highlights along the way. Whereas there are certain other uh, approaches and certain other games, certainly, where like the travel is the story. And notably, I want to call out UVG or Ultraviolet Grasslands, uh, Luca Rayek's long running project, which I think he should be coming to its ultimate completion towards the end of this year uh, on his Patreon, where um, the the game literally is measured in weeks. Uh, because that's the scale. Things just take a long time. And when when he has points on the map, there'll be a line and it'll say how many weeks between these two points. Because the whole game is like you are in a caravan and it is just long overland travel. But that whole game is actually just a system that's designed to be played alongside uh, a, a normal D&D game or a Dungeon World game. Like it's assuming that you're making constitution rolls and that sort of stuff. So you could take that whole set of procedures and just literally supplant um, the Perilous Wilds or, or sorry, the uh, Perilous Journeys move if you want. Um, and it basically adds another sheet to the game, which is the caravan sheet, kind of like Blades and Dark adds the crew sheet. But instead of tracking uh, like heat and reputation and the types of, and your and your henchmen that the crew sheet is tracking, it's tracking like your supplies and how many pack animals do you have and how many uh, vehicles do you have, do you have any, and, and that sort of thing. So it, it actually makes the travel the story and adds new tables of random things that can happen on the road and that type of stuff. And I think just without that stuff, there just isn't the backbone to make travel all that interesting, which is why when we spend a lot of time on it, in, in some games it feels unjustified. Totally. Well, we do have more questions coming in over this signal stone, but I think the, uh, the, the, the law is closing in. The impending doom is is about to to hit us unless we can find a portal home. So yeah, that's law with a capital L A W. If you want to help us get out of this mess, there are a few things you can do. Join the conversation on the Dungeon World Discord. Hang out in the podcast channel and talk about the things that we're talking about today. Let us know how things go in your own games and any questions that you have or that you'd like to see us discuss in the future. We've got a couple of episodes lining up right now that we're really excited. So keep on coming back and checking out what we're doing. And to that point, if you like what we're doing, we'd love to hear all about that. If you can leave us a five-star review in your podcast app of choice, especially if that podcast app is iTunes, because for some reason that's the important one, 
Uh, we are always thrilled to see feedback, thrilled to get ratings and learn about what people are identifying with and what people want to see more of and where we can you know, grow and improve. Beyond that, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are available at play number two find out, play to find out. And you can hit us up on email at play to find out at protonmail.com. Please send escape instructions. Until next time, this is play to find out. <laughs>